The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible, that's in your New Testament. While you're doing that, we do have children's church today. If you're in fifth grade on down, would like to be a part of that, you can go ahead, back lobby there. If you've got a Bible, bring your Bible, and they're going to study the Word together. Going to have a great time. Circle back around with the kids, see what the scripture lesson of the day was. While the kiddos are scooting to the back, just a couple of highlights on some announcements that were mentioned earlier. So it is prayer night. We have that once a month, fourth Sunday of the month, in hosted in homes. You can host one in your home at any time if you'd like to volunteer. Some of you have done that. Thanks for doing that. So we have three prayer satellites in homes tonight. Ed and Sharu, can you raise your hand where you are? So they're over yonder. So if you want to let Sharu know she's sitting right over yonder, uh, let, that's the Palo Alto region. And then Aaron and Kathy, y'all, here, there's Kathy. So if you want to go to the Stanford area, Kathy's sitting right there if you want to notify her. For those of you who maybe don't know who they are. And then Helen or Patrick, are you here? Right back, way back yonder, the size. And you can let them know. Thank you for providing that opportunity. We just pray for an hour. God loves his people to pray. It's a sweet time of fellowship as well. God answers prayer. He honors prayer. He's done amazing things in our churches through prayer. We need to continue to persevere in prayer. Don't grow weary in prayer. Keep praying. See how many we get tonight to come and pray. What's the alternative? What are you doing? Watching Sunday night football? Why would you do that? I'm boycotting NFL. But anyway, God's people are blessed when they are with God's people and praying. So if you don't have prior commitments of significance, mark that on your calendar. You will be blessed. I guarantee it. Prayer time. The other update was that, so we merged July 1st. I think this is week 11 of the church merge. So we are Creekside, let me get this right, i got to think about this slowly, Creekside Bible Church, week 11, what a blessing it has been. We had our first ever Creekside Bible Church staff retreat this weekend, Friday to Saturday, 24 hours short and sweet up at Mount Hermon, and I think everybody came back, right, Austin, for the most part? And we came back and just it was a precious time, a sweet time, extended time, personal to get away from the busyness of life and the transition, uh, transition and the being in flux and concentrated FaceTime fellowship, talking about the ministry together, how we can help one another, sharing with one another what's going on in our lives, prayer requests, praying for one another. Just so you know, that's what we did. And it was very encouraging for our now new, it was new, we had seven staff people. So it was me and Pastor Bob and Austin and Pastor Derek and Pastor JR and Pastor Justin Duran and um, Justin Kraft, seven of us. So it was a sweet time. wanted you to be aware of what's going on in your church. Those are important times, uh, these times of transition and things are new and getting to know one another. And God honored that and he blessed it. He unified our hearts. So... 
praise God for that opportunity. Speaking of the merge, we've been doing some new things. We had the elders give their testimony for eight weeks in a row during Sunday school. Many of you took advantage of that. If you're members, especially, you should have taken advantage of that to get to know your shepherds and elders better. Testimonies were amazing. God is a living Savior. That's what I learned. And then we did the nine, ten sermons in Revelation, one through three. That was fruitful. That was wonderful, having a group of our elders preach through those three chapters. The idea was to take away practical lessons. Jesus is the head of the church. He knows what's best. And he literally tells us things to do and not do in the church, things that he will bless, things that he will judge, condemn. And we wanted to take away those practical lessons. That's where we left off last week. So now we're at another point, and we're going to make another transition here, and that's uh, the next book that we're going to go through. We are going to go through the Gospel of Luke together. And so as we were over the last year thinking, praying, okay, God, what are we going to do at one point when everything settles down and we get back into a book of the Bible? And I landed on Luke, and I thought it was important. You know, I was going through Luke recently, and, you know, Jesus was in every chapter. That is exciting. 24 chapters. Jesus is in every chapter. That's what, a, that's what a church needs, the local church. That's what God's people need. That's what a church merge needs. We need to come every Lord's Day Sunday and hear about Jesus. Jesus exalted. Jesus at the center. Jesus is the highlight. It's not a how-to anything. It's Jesus. And I thought that's probably the healthiest thing we can do to help establish or let God establish the foundation of our, our merge moving forward. So we are excited about that. So we're going to launch through and go at a, a good pace as we learn from the Master Himself, the Lord Jesus, as we search the Scriptures together today. I just wanted to introduce the Gospel of Luke. So I'm going to give you an introduction to the Gospel of Luke. So if you go there now and listen, you want to take notes, that's fine, or just follow along as I go. You can't use your MacArthur Study Bible to cheat and steal all my thunder, all right, as I go through. Do that later, later today. By the way, I didn't use that at all in my study or preparation. So, um, But that's kind of the idea. We're going to get an overview of the Gospel of Luke as we go through all 24 chapters. So let's go ahead and look. open up to chapter 1, and we'll just kind of survey this wonderful book written 2,000 years ago by a man who was superintended by the Spirit of God, and God graciously preserved it for 2,000 years for his church. And we benefit from it today just as much as the saints did when it was originally written. So I've got like maybe five main points here just to kind of give you an outline or a direction as we follow along in our overview of the, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, first, just by way of introduction in a general way of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is in your New Testament, if you notice, you, if you have a traditional Bible like so. Towards the, it's in the New Testament, towards the end of your Bible. It's at the front of the New Testament, and it's called a gospel. Gospel. Gospel is from a Greek word, and gospel means good news. Some of you got it. Gospel means good news. So it is appropriate that Luke would be called the gospel of Luke, the good news that uh, which Luke gives us. And so we've got four Gospels. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Uh, the main character in all four of those is the Lord Jesus himself and his earthly ministry primarily, and that's probably why the church quickly in history decided to call them 
the Gospels to designate them as a special category. So Luke is one of four Gospels. They begin your New Testament. Uh, some people immediately ask, why are there four Gospels instead of three or five or just one? And the answer, obviously, is because that's what God wanted in His Bible. It was at His sovereign discretion. He thought it would be best for His church and His people, especially throughout the ages. He moved these four men to write the four original books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are there four? Well, uh, the original four, every one of those had a, a very specific purpose when it was written independent of the other three. So Matthew, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he wasn't thinking, okay, how can I compliment John that hasn't been written yet and Luke and Mark and fill in the holes and not, not at all. Matthew was a specific author that lived at a specific time in history in a specific region with specific people with specific issues pressing in on him, moved by the Spirit of God, called by God to write his book for a very specific purpose at that time. And that's also true of Mark, uh, Luke, and John. So why are there four Gospels? Because that was God's design and supernatural intention. And they served a purpose historically, but they also, taken together, serve another purpose in perpetuity for the church, for God's people. So that's why we have four Gospels. You take the four Gospels together and you just have a beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ with respect to His ministry in its fullness. that You wouldn't have if you just had one of the Gospels alone. So that's one of the benefits that we have later that the early, earlier saints didn't have. Say the audience in Matthew's day, they just had Matthew maybe, and that was hard to get. They probably didn't have their own. If you were a Christian, you didn't get your own copy of Matthew. You probably went to a synagogue or some Christian's house or out in the courtyard of the temple or under a bush or by a fig tree, and somebody got access to Matthew's gospel in Matthew's day, and maybe they read Matthew's gospel out loud, and you listened attentively. That's the way it originally happened, and then by God's grace, he allowed Matthew to eventually write it down. So we've got four Gospels. They are distinct. There are similarities. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, many of you might know, are very similar. They're almost parallel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're not identical, but they are very similar. Statistical studies have been done for centuries regarding the content of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Even John Calvin did that in the 1600s, a statistical analysis of the four Gospels, what's the same, what's different, what's parallel. What's the point of emphasis? How are they unique and different and why? So much of that analysis has been done. Just by way of example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the most similar. Luke is quite distinct and different than the other three. Mark is the shortest with 16 chapters in our English Bible. 93% of the Gospel of Mark you can find, if you took Luke, Matthew, and John together, you would find 93% of the whole book of Mark. So Mark only contributes 7% that's totally unique that you can't find in any one of the other three Gospels. So that shows you the, the crossover. But even in the crossover, Mark's got his own flavor. He has certain vocabulary words he uses that the others don't. He writes with a different style. Even in parallel accounts, he might have it from a different perspective. It's still true. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, 41% of what Luke wrote you can find in the other three Gospels, meaning 59% of what Luke writes is unique. 59% of what Luke writes you're not going to find in Matthew, Mark, and John. 
This is why I was excited to go through the Gospel of Luke now. I'd, uh, I've preached through Matthew, I've preached through John. We preached through John at GBF, and Creekside Community Church also preached through John. So that's a good foundation that has been laid. Uh, and now we get to go through a book that at least our previous church didn't go through together, maybe in other contexts, Sunday school, but uh, as a group. So there's 59% of the material is unique that we haven't talked about in this setting, and our souls are going to be blessed as a result. John, on the other hand, very different than the other three in terms of content, and they figure 92% of the Gospel of John is original. It's, you can't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written around the same time with the, within a 15-year period in the 50s and 60s. John was not written until the 90s. So you're talking 30, 40 years later, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this massive gospel from John comes firsthand from Jesus' best friend, John the Apostle. What, what a blessing to the church at that time. Not only that, it's like, oh, yeah, I wonder what, how his is similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Oh, it's not. Not at all. Wait, who's this Nicodemus guy? I never heard of him. So there's 90, over 90% of John is unique. And I, scholars believe and Bible teachers believe, and I also believe that John was very intentional in filling in the gaps of those three Gospels to give a more complete story for us. So uh, the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, fancy word, synoptic, synoptic, optic, optics, optics, glasses, see? See, that's not too difficult, is it? It comes from a Greek word, optics, to see. Sin is a preposition thrown on the front there, and it just means with or together, to see together, to see parallel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can put them side by side in parallel. They're seen together. They kind of go together. Sin optic. That's why they're called the synoptics. John is not a synoptic gospel. Uh, so that's just basic overview and introduction regarding the four gospels and why we have four gospels. Also important to note, today in uh, academic circles from Christians, seminaries, and more and more evangelicals are trying to say that the four gospels are ancient biographies, either Roman biographies or Hellenistic biographies and the common biographies that you would find in the ancient world. And so they may start making all these parallels and even saying that Matthew, Mark, and Luke borrowed from these ancient uh, biographies that were standard in the day. And this is why you've got all these idiosyncrasies, blah, blah, blah. Just so you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they aren't ancient biographies. They aren't biographies. Some of you may have been taught or believed that these four Gospels are bio they're biographies of Jesus. They aren't. And when you read it, you're going to find stuff, and you're going to be disappointed when you don't find it because of a, what a biography promises you. There are just certain standard things that are in biographies, like starts at the very, very beginning, gives the background, your grandparents, their parents, where they came from, where they studied, their history, their lineage, their occupations, and then uh, the person at hand who is the center of the biography and when he was born and the date he was born uh, and then how he grew up and uh, all the years of his life and they go into great detail and they give the description of what he looked like in his physical features. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there really isn't one specific physical feature of Jesus given. We don't even know what he looked like. Unless, of course, you read Time magazine that came out two years ago with a picture of Jesus. Did you know that? Like, this is the closest rendition based on modern technology of what we think Jesus probably looked like, based on the fact that he was a Jew, a Semite who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And it, I'm just like, yeah, right. That is not Jesus. But anyway, so that's not the point of the Gospels, to 
give us a biography. Many other things regarding biographies just aren't there. For example, the whole life of Jesus is missing, so that's not a good biography, right? He's born, and then all of a sudden, he's 30 years old. And then the Gospel of John doesn't even talk about his birth. It's like, here's Jesus. By the way, he's eternal, and now he's 30. And by the way, I'm only going to talk about the last six days of his life. Oh, thanks, John. That's the Gospel of John. That is not a biography. So these are, really the the point is God wanted to communicate to his people the Messiah who came in fulfillment to the promises of Old Testament Scripture regarding the Savior of the world. And that's why these Gospels are just laced with all kinds of Old Testament Scriptures showing Jesus did this, he fulfilled this, here's who he is, just as God said, just just as God promised from Old Testament Scriptures, he is the Savior of the world. So there is a common denominator in terms of the purpose of why the Gospels was written. On one hand, they all talk about his deity and his humanity, and on the other hand, each one of them is unique and distinct and has unique points of emphasis. So regarding the unique point of emphasis on the four Gospels, just big picture, uh, the Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. It's, it's clearer in the Gospel of John than anywhere else that he is God. I mean, literally, emphatic statements that he is God. My Lord and my God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So the deity of Christ. Jesus himself claiming to be deity. I and the Father are one. So uh, that is a big emphasis. And another emphasis by John stated in his Gospel is that it's evangelistic, which is not true of Luke, not true of Matthew. Can you use Luke and Matthew for evangelism? Absolutely. But John's stated purpose in John 20 at the end of the book is, I've written these things in particular. I've given you eight miracles of Jesus. How many miracles did Jesus do? A gazillion times ten. But I'm only giving you eight. By exposing you to these supernatural works of Jesus to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and as such the qualified Savior of the world that you might believe in him, be saved and have eternal life. That is the purpose of the Gospel of John. It is evangelistic and very specific. Eight miracles. You go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have all kinds of miracles. Luke has over 20 miracles. As a matter of fact, Luke has 20 miracles that are unique, can't be found in any other book, in addition to other miracles that he shares with Mark and Matthew. So John, emphasizing the deity of Christ, it's evangelistic, and also uh, emphasizing the hostility of the Jews. The Jews, Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, that phrase mentioned over 80 times in the Gospel of John, and it's always, they are the enemies of Christ. They want to kill Christ. They crucify Christ. The Jews, these are the unbelieving Jews as opposed to the believing apostles who were Jews. It's the leadership who opposed Jesus Christ. That's John's point of emphasis. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Luke, how many times does he use that phrase? The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Just four, that's it. Not over 80. So that just shows you a little difference in terms of their point of emphasis. So, Mark, what's his point? Uh, Probably the overriding theme is that Jesus came as the suffering servant. So, Jesus came as God, deity, who can save you from your sin, owns your soul. And then Mark, he is the suffering servant. And that is a big emphasis all throughout the gospel of Mark. Matthew, what's his emphasis? Uh, Apparently, his audience was Jewish. And so, he has a Jewish theme. And he wants to accentuate that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, who is indeed the anointed one, the king of the world, and specifically the king of Israel. That's why the beginning of Matthew's book starts out showing that Jesus descended from Abraham, the first Jew, the patriarch of the Jews, and then also he's a descendant of the greatest king of Israel, which is David. And someday he will assume the throne on earth of King David, as promised 
in Samuel. So Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the king of Israel and really the king of the world. Then uh, Matthew uses this phrase, king of heaven, a kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, 32 times, kingdom of heaven. Most of the time it's Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is not used in any of the other three gospels, not at all. The kingdom of God, yes. Kingdom of heaven, no. So that's a unique phrase to Matthew because he's talking to the Jews, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And then Luke, what's his emphasis that we're going to see? Well, there's commonality with the other three that we just mentioned, but there's a definitive point of emphasis. And Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of the world. There's this universal appeal that Luke has in presenting Jesus to the whole world that you don't find in the other three Gospels, particularly in Matthew where Luke is concerned about the whole world and everybody and every strata of, and of society and every kind of conceivable person, that Jesus is the Savior of all sinners, no matter where you come from, no, no matter your economic status, your ethnic, your background, religion, whether you're a Jew or not. And in particular, Luke highlights Gentiles throughout his whole book. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of uh, some pretty, just pathetic people. You see sinful women getting saved, like a prostitute, like sexually immoral, getting saved, repenting of sin and getting saved. That's awesome. Samaritans portrayed in a good light in the Gospel of Luke? Whoa, that was contrary to what the Jews would do in Jesus' day. They were half-breeds, mongrels, polluted. They could be saved through Jesus. Uh, And on and on it goes. So an appeal is... Jesus as the Savior, and also emphasizes Jesus' humanity in, the other, in a way that the other three Gospels do not. So that's uh, just basic introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Let, let's go to the author. Let me ask you, as we talk about the author, it says the Gospel according to Luke. If I were to ask you who wrote the Gospel of Luke, you would say, Luke, and then my follow-up question to you immediately would be, how do you know that? Well, you couldn't say, well, it says so in the Gospel of Luke. No, it doesn't. Luke's name is not in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, well, uh, maybe uh, it's in the book of Acts. No, it's not. Luke's name is not in the Gospel or in the Acts or the Gospel of Luke. Yet we say dogmatically and emphatically that, well, Luke wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know we think, pretty confident, you can pretty much count on it, that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke because Luke wrote Acts. So we determine the authorship of Luke based on the authorship of the book of Acts. But I thought you said that Luke's name is not in the book of Acts. I did say that. But Luke, the character, Luke, the companion of Paul, is in, he occurs, he makes a cameo appearance in the story of the book of Acts. First in Acts 16, where the writer of Acts has been writing in third person, all of a sudden in Acts 16, he writes in first person, we did this, then we went there, and then I went with Paul, and we did this, and they came to us. It's like, oh, that's a change. So the author is now identifying himself, and then when they get booted out of Philippi, it goes back to third person. Then Acts 20, Paul comes back to Philippi, and then it's back to I and us and we, and it goes on all the way to 28 first person, whoever the author was. And then we deduce from scriptures and all the possible candidates and all of Paul's epistles. It's as clear as a bell. That was Luke. Luke was there in Acts. Luke wrote Acts. Whoever wrote Acts wrote the Gospel of Luke. 
And there's a lot that's been written on this that I think clearly proves that to be the case. That's why church history for 2,000 years, especially early on, the reliable fathers of the church from Tertullian to Irenaeus to uh, all those fathers in the first two to three centuries, clearly even all the way up to Jerome who came a little later, affirming clearly Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. Let's look, just go to Luke chapter 1, Just read, we'll read the introductory verses to see the similarity and parallel between Luke 1 and the book of Acts. So whoever this author is, he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken, so many people in my day, whoever this author is, whether they were in Palestine or Jerusalem, many of these people, authors, writers, have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us. So many people have taken a shot at writing about Jesus up to this point, and they were distributed and understood and read and recognized, and people were aware of it. God and Luke obviously weren't content with all of them. That's why he's going to write his account. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us, so Luke had access to some of this written material about the life and ministry of Jesus, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, so many of these things were written by actual eyewitnesses who were with Jesus and saw Jesus, and they were servants of the word, they were believers, they were trustworthy, they were reliable sources. Verse 3, and then Luke says, but it seemed fitting for me. It was fitting, it was appropriate. Really what it means is he was called by God to do this, to write the gospel. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, the beginning of really Jesus' ministry and primary sources, to write it all out, to write out the ministry of Jesus for you in consecutive order. Who's you? Well, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, capital T in your English Bible, that's probably appropriate. This is some man. He's called most excellent, means he was probably a person of rank or wealth or position or prestige in some capacity. Uh, his name means uh, beloved of God, whoever this man was. And so Luke is writing first and foremost to this individual named Theophilus. So Luke knew this guy, this man named Theophilus, beloved of God. It could have been his baptism name, that was common. So it could have been a Gentile pagan, heard the gospel, got saved, new Christian was in a position of influence, and then God commissioned Luke to have an Im impact in this guy's life with, with respect to discipleship, and then even formally writing an entire book for him so that he might be established in the truth that he's become aware of, of this Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 1, clearly he wrote to Theophilus. Now go to Acts chapter 1. A few years later, Luke writes... Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the first account I composed, which would be the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, there it is, same guy, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he, and then he, he writes the whole, now it's the whole ministry, the aftermath of the life of Jesus, the beginning and foundation of the church, uh, complete account. So Luke really is two volumes. Volume 1 is Luke and volume 2 is the book of Acts, written to the same person, and also written beyond that, the audience of the church. So um, that's how we know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, primarily from what we understand in the content of the Gospel of Luke, and early church history helps us out a lot. But technically anonymous. Luke's name only occurs three times in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy, and 
because he was an associate of the Apostle Paul. So we have very little information, but just a little bit of information talking about the author, Luke himself, a little bio about him from what we can glean from Scripture. Uh, his name is Greek, so he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. Hence, I think he's the appropriate one to talk about Jesus as Savior of the world of the Gentile world, including Gentiles, not just Jews. Uh, he was called, Paul called him the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. So he was a medical doctor. So that means he actually had to go to school, probably rigorous training, probably in Greek studies, no doubt. And he was a medical doctor. And he attended Paul for years as a companion, a dear friend, a fellow minister, and also his own personal physician, which Paul needed. Because we know Paul got beat up, Paul lived an arduous life. Paul was deprived of many things, many times. He even got sick severely. He told that to the Galatians and others in the Corinthians, and he needed a doctor. There were times where he was just found, they thought he was dead. Sometimes he was dead. God brought him back to life at least one time. So he's the beloved physician. So he's a medical doctor, but he's the beloved physician. That's a sweet term of endearment from the Apostle Paul because he considered Luke such a sweet, dear friend. Luke probably joined Paul's missionary team when Paul came through on a second missionary journey to Troas around Acts 16, Paul had been doing, that would be around A.D. 51. So Paul's been uh, saved for at least 15 years. Then he comes along, second missionary journey, and he he meets Luke. Luke is saved or got saved. He's just a, a dear, sweet man, and God assigns him to Paul's missionary team. So he ended up serving with the Apostle Paul from A.D. 51 till Paul's death in the 60s. Um, so he was faithful from the beginning all the way to the end. And that was unique. Not, not everybody who joined Paul stayed with him the whole time. Many turned on his back, betrayed him, stabbed him in the back. Demas and so many others hurt him severely, wounded him deeply. Not Luke. Luke was faithful to the end. In 2 Timothy, at the very end, at the end of his life, he's talking about, this guy abandoned me, this guy hurt me, this guy's going to pay, Alexander the coppersmith, God's coming after you. Luke, Luke alone is with me. Faithful, faithful brother. Some surmise, and legitimately so, that Luke may have served a capacity for a couple of years as the pastor in Philippi, the church of Philippi, when Paul got booted out. Some of us may have not realized that. Uh, understanding him as a pastor or an elder or shepherd in the church, but that's very possible. Um, some say that he was probably related to, he could have been a blood brother related to Titus based on one verse, which is very possible, related to Titus. I already said he was well-educated because he was trained in medicine. We also know that he was well-educated based on uh, the, the Greek of the Gospel of Luke. When you take New Testament baby Greek and you're introduced to Greek at seminary or college and taking Greek for the first time, they don't have you study the Gospel of Luke. That would be brutal. Why? Because the Greek in Luke is hard. It is complex. It's difficult. It is refined. It is seasoned. This is the, the native mother tongue of whoever this guy is. He was Greek. That is not true of the Gospel of John. John was native tongue, probably Hebrew, Aramaic. Knew Greek because he lived in a Greek culture as a Jew. Felt more comfortable with Aramaic and Hebrew, but he knew Greek. But his Greek is very simple, so when you learn Greek, you usually go to the Gospel of John. So they're, they're very different. It's very noticeable when you know Greek and study Greek. Uh, so Luke and Hebrews are uh, very refined, high level of Greek in terms of their precision. 
but it's obviously a, a very competent literary scholar that was writing, even though it's the language of it is in the language of the people. It's very understandable. But you can just tell from many of his features, terminology, that kind of stuff. Um, he was a good writer. He was an exacting historian. As we go through, we're going to see specific details that he just bends over backwards to set a historical context. I'll give you one example, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year, you talk about specific, in the 15th year, of what? Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Okay, the Bible's not mythology. It wasn't made up. Uh, this guy, Tiberius Caesar, is a real guy. You can read about him in your secular encyclopedia. Nobody denies his existence. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, there's another real guy in another real location, Judea. And Herod, was there's another real guy, was Tetrarch, that's a real title. Of Galilee, that's a real place you can visit today. Still called Galilee. His brother Philip the Tetrarch, that's another real guy you can study in history. In the region of Ituria, you can study that in history. And Trachonitis, you can study that as well in history, secular history. And Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. Did you know that? I didn't. Anyway, just, that's just one verse. It's loaded with historical reference, and they can all be validated from history. So that he is, like I said, an exacting historian, giving us the context of when these real things happen. He's also an organized thinker. He's very organized. He's logical. He's systematic. He was a trained medical professional, a literary scholar in his own right, and that's how, and you can see that when you read the Gospel of Luke, because it's, it's logical. He has a thesis, he has something he wants to accomplish, and he doesn't write his gospel chronologically from beginning to end, never deviating from chronology. Yeah, it begins with the birth of Christ. Yeah, it ends with his death and resurrection. Book ends, but in between, it's not all chronological. It's thematic, fulfilling his purposes. And it's very organized as such. Uh, what else about our author, Luke? Oh, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Did you know that? Well, it's only got 24 chapters. Well, it's, and Luke and Acts has 28. No, it's still the longest because it's got the most words. So it is the longest book in the Bible. I think it's got 1,151 verses. That's longer than any other book in the New Testament. You take Luke and Acts together, Luke wrote one-third of the New Testament. Luke wrote more than any other author in the New Testament. Luke, Luke wrote more than John did, and he wrote more than Paul did. And he wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. He was, it's kind of unique that he was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He wasn't around during the ministry of Jesus. And yet it's amazing the detail that Luke goes into in his gospel, and it's like, well, how did you know that, Luke? Like early on this unique material he gives about uh, the birth of John the Baptist, that's not in any other gospel, that's new information. You weren't there, Luke. You probably maybe weren't even born. How did you know that? The birth, uh, this Zacharias guy and Elizabeth... Simeon and Anna in the temple at the time that Christ was born, that's all new information, very specific. How did you know about that? The angel who appeared to Mary in private about the virgin birth, it was just Mary and the angel. How did you know about that, Luke? You weren't there because Luke probably asked Mary. And we're going to see that as we go through the Gospel of Luke. But he was not an eyewitness. Nevertheless, he was a conduit of reliable truth because of his sources, we already read that in chapter 1 where 
He talked to eyewitnesses, which leads us to the next point after the authors, the sources. What were the sources that Luke used? Going back to Luke chapter 1, he said, there are some things that were written, but I felt compelled by God to write as well. And actually, some of these people who wrote down these things about Christ were reliable, and I used those as my sources. Verse 2, chapter 1, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So, Luke is admitting that I actually had access to primary sources, those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, i.e. apostles. Luke probably talked to the apostles. Face-to-face, first-hand account of what went on in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We know this from the book of Acts, this was very possible, because Luke went to Jerusalem with Paul while the apostles were still alive. When Paul got arrested the first time in Acts chapter 20 and following, and then he was confined in Caesarea on the coast, which is only 70 miles away from Jerusalem, and he was in that prison for two years. Luke was with him, and Luke wasn't arrested. Luke had freedom. He can come and go. Probably during that time, Luke was going to Jerusalem and all over Palestine, hunting down these eyewitnesses, the apostles, Peter, John, Mark. Mark was not an apostle, but Mark lived during the time of Christ. Mark was present at the betrayal of Jesus, we surmise from the Gospel of Mark, and we know that Luke interfaced with Mark at least once. So during this two-year period, Luke's probably asking the 70 witnesses who were taught by Jesus, the 12 apostles. Uh, Luke gives us this unique reference to these women who followed Jesus the course of his ministry for probably three years plus in Luke chapter 8, just out of nowhere. And so the 12 apostles were following Jesus and the women. Well, where'd they come from? And he names one of them, Joanna, who's married to Chusa, who's, who's Chusa? Chusa is the steward in Herod's temple. Wow! You talk about a position of influence and access and material wealth. Chusa's married to Joanna. Joanna got saved, followed Jesus during the course of his ministry, ministering to Jesus, following Jesus, giving Jesus the things that he needs because he didn't have anything. Well, how did Luke know that all that stuff about Joanna and these women? Probably talk to him. Especially when you read the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke and you're getting all this new information you don't have in Matthew, Mark, and John about the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, all these things about Mary. Things that Mary was treasuring up in her heart. I think that statement is made more than once, two or three times. Something amazing happens and it says, and Mary treasured these things up in her heart. You know what that means? She didn't tell anybody when it happened. Not even her husband, maybe. Not full disclosure. She treasured it up, or at least she put it in her heart to remember for the rest of her life. Probably because she didn't quite understand what it meant, maybe. But the fact that she treasured it up in her heart, it was there. There was a reservoir of truth. And no doubt Luke had the opportunity to go back uh, when Paul was in prison two times at Caesarea. And then also when he was in Rome, he also had freedom for those two years. And it could be that's when he talked to all these disciples, firsthand witnesses. No doubt it's clear that he probably talked to Mary and just got all this information firsthand from Mary. What a blessing to be able to talk to the human mother of the human Jesus and to get her perspective. But he said he was an eyewitness, and he wasn't sloppy. He did it carefully. He himself was trained to do this. He himself was careful. Verse 3, let alone he had the Holy Spirit of God guiding him. 
guaranteeing that it was inspired. It was flawless. It is inerrant. It is exactly the way God wanted it. It is totally true. It is confident. You can stand on it. You can count on it. It is God's word. It's, it's authoritative. It is unshakable. Scripture cannot be broken. We can have confidence as we go through the Gospel of Luke and study it, that it reflects reality. Uh, the date, Luke was written before Acts. Acts was written probably between 60 and 63. Uh, Luke was probably written after his visit to Caesarea, so around 60, 59, 60 A.D. So it was written probably after Matthew and Mark. That's why our, our Bible goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's the order they were written. And then finally, the purpose. Uh, what is the purpose? Why did Luke write this? Well, the immediate purpose was to establish his good friend or his this disciple, maybe Theophilus, in the faith by a complete account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then God used that to go beyond that, to minister to maybe interested, curious Gentiles in the whole world that were being exposed to this person of Jesus. Because there is this special appeal and call to Gentiles to consider this Jesus, this Savior, this, this Jewish Savior, who is the only one who is qualified as a man, a true man, and at the same time divine, who can save sinners from their sin. And that's, that's really Luke's impetus and theme and call his purpose let's go and close before we go to communion with uh, as the gospel closes. look at Luke 24 if you have it there Jesus has died he's risen from the dead he's appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus now he appears to the apostles they have been doubting they are scared they're alone they're isolated and Jesus appears out of nowhere to his beloved apostles at the time of the resurrection he begins to talk to them. He says, don't be afraid. Peace be to you. It's me. Look at my hands and my feet. I'm in a resurrection body. It's your Lord, just as I have said. And then he gives them this commission, which is really the ultimate purpose of the Gospel of Luke, and we hope that you understand this as we go week by week. Verse 46, uh, verse, yeah, Jesus said to his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ or the Messiah or me, the Lord Jesus, I was supposed to suffer and die for sins of the world, and then rise again from the dead on the third day. And as a result, that repentance, a call to repentance, calling sinners to turn from their sin, repentance for forgiveness of sin. Only God can forgive sin. That is good news. That's the call of the church. That's the meaning of the gospel. That's the message of Jesus, the Savior, who is calling sinners to repent of their sin that they might be forgiven by God their creator and judge, not by anything they can do through their own works, but by solely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this be proclaimed in his name to all nations, the whole world, starting in Jerusalem forevermore until he comes again. Amen. I'm excited about going through the Gospel of Luke. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for our desire to study the Gospel of Luke and be reminded of the Lord Jesus every single week. And we just trust you're going to lead us through the work of your Holy Spirit. We commit it all to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.